this podcast, we'll be looking at the possibility of the world functioning under a system different from capitalism, or maybe a different form of capitalism. Welcome to the first episode of the podcast, Does Capitalism Have a Future? I'm your host, William Carey. going to be discussed is how we got to the current state of modern globalized capitalism. Its advocates point out that capitalism has created more wealth and personal comfort for millions of people in the past 70 years than at any time in human history. The system brings electricity, running water, food, and infrastructure to the citizens of the countries that have fully developed under this kind of economy. It is a system that works and functions consistently. If you live in the developed world, a citizen can enter a local supermarket and have the variety of 21 flavors of chips to purchase for their convenience. This convenient access to a variety of food and other necessities was not the case for the average person 200 years ago. Proponents of capitalism argue that the economic system has brought this stability. Furthermore, Capitalism's advocates point out that the system allows for individual freedom and encourages democratic forms of government, as demonstrated by the types of government that are found in the English-speaking world, Western Europe, and parts of East Asia. The alternative to capitalism, socialism, has historically led to authoritarian regimes where famines were regular and human rights were abused. Furthermore, Capitalism has shown itself to be a resilient system that has been able to adapt with the ages and has brought economic prosperity to all the countries that have embraced it. Simply compare the difference between the societies of North and South Korea. And finally, advocates argue that capitalism rewards meritocracy. If an individual is willing to work hard and or possesses ability and intelligence, they can be successful in a capitalist economy. On the other hand, its critics point out that left to its own devices, capitalism will lead to monopolization, wealth inequality, and environmental destruction. Furthermore, there are numerous examples of capitalist countries with non-democratic governments. And as Professor Richard Wolff points out, the capitalist workplace itself is a kind of dictatorship. In fact, Small-scale socialist enterprises, such as cooperatives, a place where workers collectively own and vote on the decisions made by the company, are more democratic than traditional capitalist business with their hierarchical structure. Since 1980, the wealth divide in the developed world has vastly increased, especially in the United States, a country that is the global symbol of capitalism. 1% of the population in the United States have 40% of the wealth. The wealth gap between America's richest and poorest families has doubled since 1989, according to Pew Research polls. Moreover, capitalism has siphoned off important resources from the public in the form of privatization of infrastructure and the pushing of tax cuts, which deplete the public coffers. And also, the system has shown itself to be unstable, as demonstrated by the current economic recession that has created mass unemployment as the result of the shutdown of the economy. But this is nothing new for many workers who historically have found themselves at the mercy of these boom and bust cycles. 
Capitalism also perpetuates social class hierarchies. Those who are in the top economic class have access to resources such as education and social networks that others do not. The inheritance of wealth means that the offspring of the upper class can remain wealthy even if they do not possess any talent or a hard work ethic. Would U.S. presidents like George W. Bush or Donald Trump have obtained the level of success that they have in life had they been born into poverty? Meanwhile, the working poor, who occupy a rung much lower down on the economic ladder, may be working at three different jobs, yet can't seem to get ahead or out of the debt hole that they find themselves in. Also, with globalization, much of the resources and labor used in capitalist production comes from countries with poor labor laws and few environmental protections. Furthermore, as corporations grow in size, they begin to swallow up smaller independent-run businesses. As competition gets crowded out, there is less choice for the customer. From the robber barons of the 19th century all the way up to the current tech corporations such as Facebook have been accused of this kind of practice. There was even a board game that warned the public about this phenomenon, Monopoly. Finally, capitalism's growth has often not taken into account the impact that growth has had on the environment, and corporations have only ever capitulated and brought environmental regulations when pressure from citizens and politicians forced them to make changes. As a result of capitalism's development in many places in the world, smog has contaminated the air in cities, water has been made undrinkable, soil degraded, and wildlife brought to extinction. Most serious of all is the warming of the planet by our addiction to fossil fuels that are required for endless capitalist growth. It is for these reasons that many people today feel that capitalism is no longer sustainable. What I would like to do here is to look at these economic systems from both the advocates and the critics point of view. And then I would like to pose a few questions. Is there a viable alternative to capitalism and how would it work? Can capitalism be reformed and made more humane? Is socialism with its dark history really the answer? Or could it be implemented in a different form? Or maybe socialism's critiques could be a guide to reform capitalism. Do we really want to destroy the system that capitalism is based on? Could there be a hybrid of the two systems? I'm expecting that this inquiry will lead to many questions, but let's start the journey. Capitalism bases its ideas on private ownership of the means of production, i.e. factories that make stuff. People in a capitalist society have the right to individual property and accumulation of wealth. There is a voluntary exchange of goods between buyers and sellers where workers sell their labor to employers based on a wage determined by the market along with the skill sets of the worker. The distribution of goods is based on the demands of the market and the prices of the goods is based on both demand and competition of other owners. It is the competition that prevents the prices from getting out of hand. The purest form of capitalism is free market capitalism or laissez-faire capitalism. In this form of capitalism, the government plays a minimal role in regulating the market and is there to enforce property rights. However, governments historically have not had a hands-off approach to markets and capitalism. Due to pressure from workers and citizenry, governments over time have regulated capitalism. 
They have created rules that constrain capitalism from polluting the environment and exploiting labor. On the other hand, the vast amount of wealth accumulated by capitalists has had a corrupting effect on governments. Governments have worked closely with private companies in creating infrastructure projects and directly interfering with market competition by providing subsidies or contracts that favor certain companies. This fusion of government with capitalism is often referred to as crony capitalism. During election cycles in the United States, corporations give vast amounts of wealth to the politicians that they want to win, so politicians will cater to these corporations. People may have the vote in many capitalist societies, but that vote does not seem to matter if the politicians are being bought and paid for by big money interests. But where did this all begin? Capitalism started in the 1700s in England. It evolved out of feudalism, which was a system based on the divine rights of royalty to own land in which peasants stayed on and gave away the majority of the crops they had slaved over to grow. Along with the Protestant Reformation and the increase of literacy came the rise of merchants who were becoming wealthy as the result of buying and selling goods on a market. The ability to produce these goods were increased as the result of steam technology. Soon objects for purchase could be produced at a much greater rate in factories and sold on the market. In 1776, the Scottish philosopher Adam Smith penned the philosophy behind this new system in his book, The Wealth of Nations. Smith believed that human beings were motivated by money and self-interest. People will buy and sell goods to each other if it is in their self-interest. The market would be guided by an invisible hand in which the capitalist is motivated to produce goods that the people want. Competition from other capitalists would prevent prices from becoming too high. As capitalism expanded, more people were put to work and peasants who once roamed the countryside began to flock to cities where massive factories were being erected. By the 1850s, capitalism was booming, especially in the cities of the United Kingdom. But this came at a cost. Horrific air pollution from coal stacks, deforestation of the countryside, kids working in factories, and workers working long hours and getting physically injured and even killed. Charles Dickens described the life of these factories and the surrounding decay in many of his novels, particularly hard times. Poet William Brake described them as dark satanic mills. English reformer John Ruskin pointed out that all this brutal toil done by workers and factories was done in many cases to produce trinkets and things people did not really need. All this effort was made in order to create a kind of vacuous consumerism. Capitalism has its champions and its critics. Its most famous critic is Karl Marx. Two interrelated ideologies that stem from his writings are communism and socialism. Socialism believes in the social ownership of the means of production, which in many cases means that the general public is the owner and workers' self-management of enterprises. The state plays a central role in creating a plan for how this type of market will function. Communism is the final stage of this process where there is a common ownership over the means of production and there are no longer social classes, currency, or even a state. There are many regimes that have called themselves socialist or communist. The two most famous are the Soviet Union 
and the People's Republic of China. The Soviet Union was created as a result of the Russian Revolution in 1917, which overthrew the Tsar and eventually the Communists seized power in November of that year. The regime lasted until 1991. The People's Republic of China was formed in 1948 after a long civil war that was interrupted by a brutal Japanese occupation only to resume and leave Mao Zedong as the leader of the nation. The idea of communism was to empower workers and free them from the tyranny of their bosses and the exploitation they endured as a wage slave. Neither of these nations lived up to that promise, and in fact, these regimes created conditions of horrific brutality at different points in their history. Stalin's purges and Mao's cultural revolution caused mass famine, millions of imprisoned and executed people, and suppressed any possibilities of a free press or a democratic vote. By 1956, many members of communist parties in Europe had left the party after the invasion of Hungary by the Soviet Union. It should be noted that there had been many socialists who had been opposed to these two regimes right from the beginning, including groups that had participated in the Russian Revolution. They felt that these regimes were not in line with what Karl Marx had written about in his ideas of socialism. In fact, some of those critics, like Eric Hobsbawm, described the economy of the Soviet Union as a form of state capitalism. The Soviet Union collapsed under its own contradictions, while the People's Republic of China has embraced capitalism, but not democracy. Capitalism won, and American political scientist Francis Fukuyama declared the end of history in the 1990s. There simply was no alternative to capitalism. But the fall of communism changed the game for workers in the West. Even if the Soviet Union and China had not lived up to the claims of their revolution, they always symbolized an alternative to capitalism, and socialism could be evoked to convince capitalists in the West to make concessions to workers. For example, when capitalism had collapsed in the 1930s and left significant sections of the populace unemployed in the developed world, the pressure from below on governments was led by organizations that included communists and socialists. This pressure made U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt to create social security and jobs programs for millions of workers. These reforms lasted from the 30s to the 1970s, a period which is seen as a boom time for capitalism. Soldiers who had fought in World War II were given free higher education. Most developed countries created a socialized form of medicine, and many workers in the developed world were members of a union. A unionized worker could raise a family, buy a house, and put their kids through college on a single income. In the United States, this was known as living the American dream. While these reforms were attacked along the way by big money interests, often under the guise of fighting communism, starting in the 70s and going full swing by the 80s and 90s, they were being eliminated. The security of many working class people was simply over. The thing is, capitalism now had one serious advantage over workers. Capitalism had spread all over the world. So now capitalists could take advantage of the desperate non-unionized workers in the developing countries and move manufacturing to those places. Manufacturing began to leave the United States and other Western capitalist democracies 
and would set up shop in places like Bangladesh or Mexico. Workers in the West found themselves working at various jobs in the service sector, where the pay was much lower and the hours unstable. Even more precarious was the concept of the gig economy, where employment was based on short-term contracts. This was the end of lifetime employment. The irony of all of this was that the one country that was attractive to the Western manufacturers was the People's Republic of China, a communist country that had embraced a capitalist framework. It was led by a single communist party that made illegal the formation of labor unions. It was the perfect place for a compliant yet well-educated workforce. Another irony is that these goods produced in China could be sold cheaply back to the Western countries. Businesses that, were that used this model, like Walmart, were able to swallow up the mom-and-pop shops in the West. And those workers whose jobs had been outsourced now shopped at these big box stores because they could only afford to shop there. The anger that these workers felt began to manifest itself in different ways. Right-wing populism began to develop in the 1990s. It utilized xenophobia as the focal point for working-class rage, along with hatred for ruling, educated elites that had liberal social values. Many of these elites, who in earlier generations had been champions of the worker, had now abandoned them in the favor of globalization and free-flowing capitalism. This ideology was known as neoliberalism and had been implemented by two famous conservative politicians, President Ronald Reagan and Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher. But their liberal successors, Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, fully embraced and expanded upon this ideology. Xenophobia became an easy tool for the far right to use as a greater number of immigrants flocked to these countries both legally and illegally to do what immigrants have always done look for an opportunity to improve their lives. When millions of Americans were shocked to find out that Donald Trump had been elected, they failed to recognize the resentment that had been brewing among the working class over the years. The other reaction that recurred was a left-wing one. Young people in the United States and other Western countries began to have an increasing interest in socialism. In 2012, the Occupy Wall Street movement began, where people in mass numbers took to the streets to protest the bailout of the banks that occurred as the result of the 2008 financial crisis. Banks in the United States had been deregulated in 1999, and many of these banks were motivating employees to sell mortgages to as many people as they could, even if those people could not afford them. The result? A house of cards that collapsed and the destruction of the economy. In the United States, Bernie Sanders, the politically independent senator from Vermont, made a run at the Democratic leadership in both 2016 and 2020. At another time, the 1930s, or another place, Scandinavia, Sanders' policies would not be seen as straying from the political center. But in a United States ravaged by neoliberalism, Sanders was seen as a socialist, a label that he embraced. The Democratic establishment made sure that Sanders did not win the nomination, but socialism was now part of the discourse in America again. The coronavirus pandemic exposed many Western capitalist economies' inability to deal with a public health crisis. Medical equipment that was not considered urgent was not produced. 
The countries that had most embraced neoliberalism, the United States and the United Kingdom, failed to protect their citizens by implementing sensible policies that would stop the spread of the disease or protect people from economic hardship as a result of the economy shutting down. The state had been so weakened from austerity and privatizations that resources available for public good were just not sufficient to meet the public needs. The horrific murder of George Floyd by Minneapolis police brought millions of people out onto the streets in the U.S. and around the world to demand justice and change. For many, this also meant a change to the capitalist system that had created such wealth inequality in society. The question is, what kind of change? Is it a reform that involves policies like a higher taxation on the wealthy, or is it a complete overthrowing of the system? Is capitalism like what Winston Churchill said about democracy? It is the worst system except for all the others. In the course of this series, I will be having conversations with people who have different points of view on capitalism, and we'll be exploring if there's a possibility for change. Many people would agree that capitalism is in a crisis, but what is the solution or alternative? Could the cure be worse than the disease? If nothing is done, are we doomed to go off an economic or ecological cliff? The topic of capitalism is extremely important to these times we are living in, and I feel it needs to be seriously analyzed and discussed from multiple points of view. And that's what we are going to be doing. Thank you very much. I'm William Carrick, and I will see you on the next episode. The music you are listening to is Climb by Shane Murray.